You may have noticed this uh, um, spray of flowers up here in the front. Um, Rosalie Valutis and her family bought those. Uh, it's been one year this weekend that Ron passed away. Uh, some of you may not know Ron Valutis. He was a much-loved teacher here and had a massive heart attack a year ago this weekend. And God took him home, so he's not here with us anymore, but we still celebrate his life. What a legacy he left. I'm going to ask you to... Uh, Pray with me for this text, but uh, specifically I shared um, in, the, um, in the 9 o'clock service, I really feel God pressing on our hearts to uh, pray for our nation, especially those who are going to be in budget discussions this week. Um, we have been given an amazing gift here in the United States of America, and we would acknowledge collectively as a nation we're messing it up. And this great gift that's been given to us, a gift from God, uh, can be taken down by a financial calamity. And I believe God can use circumstances like this to draw people back to himself. So what I'd like to do is pray with you that God would, first of all, invade the hearts of those who are sitting in that cabinet room discussing the future of this nation. And not man's solution but rather that they'd be driven to look for God's solution. So let's pray and ask him to do that, and then we'll pray about the text as well. Would you join me? Father, we believe that our, our hearts are more centered on you right now, having been able to worship you in song. Thank you for our time together in prayer. That we can bring all things to you. And you are intimately concerned with what's going on in our nation. And these financial issues, Father, are merely a representation of the heart. So, Father, we cry to you like Daniel cried on behalf of the nation of Israel that we would repent of our errors. And, Father, it has to begin with us individually first. That we would look at where we've made mistakes and say, no more but that learning has to come from you that we would know which way to go from here. So, Father, I ask that your presence would be known in the chambers of the White House and in the chambers of the Senate building. When individuals sit down to discuss the financial future of this nation, and as this nation goes, so goes this world, God, we ask that you would invade that place and that you would make your presence known that individuals who have no relationship with you would be brought into relationship. And that even the ungodly, Father, would yield to your way. Father, I pray that at the beginning of the discussions that your word would be read, that people would look to you for wisdom and understanding. Father, I know that your heart is that people would turn to you and perhaps you're going to use these circumstances to set the stage on a global environment for the end times. But perhaps not, Father. Perhaps you merely want us to learn again. So we just yield it to you and ask that your presence would be known, that you would bring people to a point where they're desperate for you, and that you would make yourself known. Do whatever you have to do, Father. God, I pray as we look at this text this morning, that you would allow us, those of us who've set aside the issues of our day and made time to come in here to learn more about your character and your nature, about your ways, 
that you would help us to leave here feeling that we're much richer for the experience and that we would not be quick to dismiss or forget these things. So God, give us the capacity. Give us the ears to hear. Give us the eyes to see. And we ask for the mental capacity to comprehend what you want us to see. And all that can only happen through the work of your Holy Spirit. So God, we ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. So I wondered over this last week as I'm looking at this text, because it's incredibly hard, what would it be like to sit down with Jesus for two days? Ask Him whatever you want to ask Him. About four weeks ago, we looked at the people of this area in Samaria, a country called Samaria. They've got the city in Samaria called Sychar in this city. We're told four weeks ago Jesus hung out with those people for two days. wasn't part of the plan. wasn't part of the itinerary, but they begged Him to come. I wonder what they asked Him. What would you ask Jesus if you could hang out with Him for two days? Could you kind of explain the Trinity to me? Because I really don't get it. What about this thing called the judgment? How does that work? What's the judgment look like? Or how about this one? What happens when people die? I'd like to know more. More than just what's revealed in Scripture. Can you help me to understand that? I guarantee you this morning we're going to wear out this PowerPoint projector because we're going to be looking at such deep issues such as these that we've discussed this morning already. Jesus covered those issues in five minutes. Verses 18 through verse 30 of chapter 5 in John, if you read through it, you can read through it in five minutes. Less than that. And in that span of time, He unfolded how God works among His people and who He is. Jesus made it very clear about who He is in the text we're looking at this morning. So I hope you're prepared to wade into the deep end of the pool this morning because we're looking at some really deep theology. And it's going to make your brain hurt, I guarantee it. It made mine hurt, so it's only fair that I share the love with you, okay? So we're working through this this morning, and we're going to work hard at taking the very complex and making it simple so that we can leave here this morning understanding what we just looked at. So if you have your Bibles this morning, join with me in John chapter 5, verse 18 is where we're going to pick up. That's where we left off last week. It's also going to be up on the screen. If you're new to New Hope, you'll find Bibles in the pew racks right there in front of you. You can follow along that way. John's found in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, fourth book of the New Testament. But you can follow along on the screen. John 5, 18. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. So we learn right away they're angry at Jesus. Jesus has ticked off another crowd. They're angry with him, and they're furious with him because he declared himself to be equal with God. Now understand that the individuals that he's speaking to in this setting is this. He's just healed a paralyzed man, a man who's by the side of a pool, the pool of Bethesda. We looked at it last week. And immediately, Scripture says, in a moment, this man is standing upright and walking. He's been paralyzed for 38 years. But because Jesus did it on the Sabbath, which is for them Saturday, for the ancient Jews, Saturday, Shabbat, 
is Sabbath. For the church today, it's Sunday. But for them, it was Saturday. So on Saturday, the Sabbath, the time that you weren't supposed to work, Jesus was working. And they're angry with him because men are not supposed to work. So what they understand Jesus is saying is that he's more than a mere man. And for more than a mere man to declare equality with God is a crime punishable by death. A very graphic death, stoning. I mean, they literally pick up boulders and rocks and throw at the person until they crush them. So that's what Jesus is facing. So you understand that if they had misunderstood him, if they didn't understand him correctly, what he was declaring, he would have clarified it because nobody wants to be stoned. They didn't misunderstand him. As a matter of fact, they properly deduce exactly what he's saying. They get it. It's exactly his words. He's God. That's what he's showing them. And instead of denying the accusation, he amplifies it, and what you're going to see is he begins to ramp it up. Now, we would say in this setting here this morning, or perhaps in your workplace, if someone came to you and said, I'm God, you would think they're either joking or they're mentally delusional. You can't have it either way. But Jesus, we see, is deadly serious when he presents this. Any other person in these circumstances facing stoning by death for making a declaration would be very quick to defend themselves. They'd be fervent about it, trying to back out of the situation. But Jesus lays out a case that is so clear for this reason. He wants them to understand his words and understand his actions so that no one can question what he's saying. Dr. William Barclay is a theologian, and he captured uh, in a quote what's going on here. I want you to see it on the screen. An act of the most extraordinary and unique courage. To speak like this was to court death. It is his claim to be king, and he knew well that the man who listened to the words like this had only two alternatives. The listener must either accept Jesus as the Son of God, or he must hate him as a blasphemer and seek to destroy him. That's what you're left with this morning. You must either recognize that what you're about to see is either declaring Jesus as the Son of God, God Creator, or you must reject Him. So he lays it out this way. If you picked up one of the bulletins when you came in this morning, there's a little white insert that had blank spaces where you can fill in the answers. Item number two on that is an outline that shows Jesus' argument. So let let me just go over it for you very quickly. It's not going to be on the screen. First he says in verse 19, I'm equal with God. I'm the giver of life in verse 21. I'm the final judge in verse 22. I determine eternal destiny in verse 24. And we spend a lot of time on the raising of the dead. I will raise the dead, verse 25. And I am also doing the will of God, verse 30. So what you're going to see now is Jesus boldly affirming his previous claim when he healed the paralyzed man so that everybody understood what's going on. So in verse 19, when he says, I'm just doing what my Father does. Well, what would those things be that the Father does? What are some of those examples? Because the Jews are distressed. They're trying to figure out what's going on here. This guy speaks like God. He acts like God, but he's a man. How can this possibly be? So some of the things are, he's acting like the Father. Jesus is working on the Sabbath. God never needs to rest. God is always active. He does the works of God, he's healing people, and he speaks consistently with God. Even their own rulers were beginning to recognize 
This guy's extraordinary. Remember what we saw in John chapter 3? Nicodemus, not just a Pharisee, but a member of the Supreme Court, came to Jesus at night. Look with me on the screen, John 3, 2. This is Nicodemus speaking. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miracle, miraculous signs that you do unless God is with him. So even their own leaders recognize something going on here extraordinary. What Jesus is showing us is that he cannot act contrary to his nature. He's a lion. He can't act like a rabbit. They're not the same. You have to act according to your nature. He's God, so he's acting like God. So what you're going to see is Jesus taking the stand, and he becomes forceful and emphatic. Why? Because he wants you to understand. He wants them to understand. He's not vague at all about who he is. So let's go to verse 19. Therefore Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of Himself unless it is something He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all things that He Himself is doing. And the Father will show Him greater works than these so that you will thumazo. The word is marvel. We'll look at the meaning of that in just a minute. But it's to be filled with wonder. So Jesus starts off by saying, truly, truly. Now if you've read the Bible at all, you know that that's a phrase that's commonly associated with Jesus. And if somebody wanted to make a declaration so everybody got it, truly, truly. We might use the vernacular today to say, I swear to you, I'm telling the truth. Truly, truly is an irrefutable statement. They're saying, what you're hearing is exactly what you think you're hearing. It's true. So he's associating the Sabbath healing, the healing of this paralytic, with the fact that he's doing what God does because he's God. The Son can do nothing unless it's something the Father's doing. So what he's saying is we act interdependently. We're intertwined. We do everything together because we're one. Equal in nature. Equal in objectives of one purpose. So we would say his work parallels the Father. Everything the Father's doing, the Son is doing. So he says that whatever the Father does, the Son does. Also, in like manner. Think of the magnitude of that statement. Whatever the Father does, the Son does in like manner. Only someone equal to God can do what God does, correct? And that's the statement Jesus is making. This is what's messing with their minds. This guy is a man, yet he's raising the dead. He's healing the sick. He speaks like God. And he's declaring they have absolute unity of their essence. Why? Because they're one and the same. You see Jesus, you see God. So that's why he says in John 12, 45, He who sees me sees the one who sent me. Now we read next that he says the Father loves the Son. It says, Father loves the Son, shows Him all that He's doing. This word love that's used here is not agape. It's phileo. And phileo is the Father love towards a son, the way a father loves his son. But it goes beyond that. The verb that's used here in the Greek, the way that the, aga, the phileo works out is it has a repetitive action to it. 
Meaning in the Greek language, there were certain words that were used, of verbs especially, that had ongoing impact into the future and ongoing impact into the past. And the way that Jesus used this word phileo, meaning this love is from eternity past and this love is from eternity future meaning it's unlimited in time. So because it's unlimited love, the Father reveals to the Son everything because they're of one mind. Here's what he's saying. Jesus has to be aware of all that God is doing because they're the same nature. Whether it's the Sabbath healing or anything else, he and the Father are the same. But he doesn't stop there. He says, you think that's something? There's still greater works to be done. Do you see how he ends it? There's even greater things. Now remember, the healings up to this point have amazed the crowds. If you were here last week, we looked at Luke, when Luke wrote specifically that there were so many people trying to get to Jesus, they were literally climbing over the top of each other. Luke said they were stepping on one another. There were so many thousands of people flocking around Jesus. Because of the healings. And Jesus said, that's nothing. There's greater things yet to be done. Jesus is about to tell us what the greater things are. Look with me on verse 21 up on the screen. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom He wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but He has given all judgment to the Son. Uh, We would accurately say God is the source of life, would we not? God has declared in the Old Testament, I'm the fountain of life. All life emanates from me. I create everything out of nothing. So God, we would say, is the source of life. He alone has the power to reverse the aging process. He alone can call life out of death. Now the ancients believed that three very specific things belong to God and God alone. Let me show you what those three things are because they're called the three great keys. You'll see this up on the screen. The three great keys are these. The key to open the heavens and give rain, Deuteronomy 18, 28. The key to open the womb and give conception, Genesis 30. The key to open the grave and raise the dead, Exodus 37. Those three great keys ascribe to God and God alone. Yet Jesus is claiming these for himself. Here's an example from Deuteronomy 32, 29. When God brought life, he speaks specifically about how he handles life and death. Deuteronomy 32, 39. This is God speaking. See now that I, I am he, and there is no God beside me. It is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded, and it is I who heal, and there is no one who can deliver from my hand. Just in that passage alone, you'd say, if we examine that very closely, there's no death that takes place on planet Earth without God being aware. There's no accidental death. God is the one who takes life. God is the one who gives life. But that's a subject for another time. Do you see what's going on here, this declaration? God is associated with the only one who can raise the dead. At this point, Jesus has not yet raised the dead. He's healed people. But the young man coming out of the city, laying in a coffin, whom Jesus calls back to life, Lazarus still in the tomb, it hasn't happened. This is before that. So to make this claim is to invite the cocking back of the arm. They're ready to throw stones. 
This guy's claiming power that belongs to God. Supreme power. The power that belongs only to the Father, he's saying, has been conferred to the Son. Because in verse 21, it says, the Father raises the dead. So I've got equality with God. So Jesus has parallel power to raise the dead as well. So think about what he said to these individuals. He's saying it to you. I'm equal in nature, equal in character, equal in understanding, equal in power. The Old Testament has several instances in which God raised the dead through men. Specifically, one of them is Elijah. Look with me on the screen. 1 Kings 17.22, The Lord heard the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child returned to him, and he revived. However, what's remarkable about this, other than the fact that it's dead coming to life, is that it worked through men who asked of God to raise the dead. When Jesus raises the dead, and you have to look very closely at the passages, and you'll see, he doesn't ask God. He merely declares, God, show your power. Let them know. Help them to understand. But there's not an issue of a representation. Elijah and Elisha are God's representatives. Jesus is God. And so he speaks as God. So it says, the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. Why? Because his power is the same. So he has the power to give life, spiritual life, to spiritually dead people. So let's step back. This is the power of doing a series like this. Step back with me a couple weeks. We've got the woman at the well. woman at the well is having a conversation with Jesus in Samaria, and he begins to talk to her about eternal life. Look with me on the screen, and you'll see this passage, John 4, 14. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Was Jesus just talking about eternal physical life, immortality? Or is he also talking about spiritual life, unlimited spiritual, eternal life, physically and spiritually? So as God is the source of life physically and spiritually, Jesus is the source of life spiritually and physically. He does something fascinating here, but he has given all judgment to the Son. So why does he link eternal life with judgment? Seems like an odd way to insert that. Eternal life and judgment in the same statement. Equal to God and judgment. Why does he link them? First of all, Jesus possesses judicial and executive authority. Have you ever thought of that? Jesus is the judge, the one who sits on the white throne in the last day, the day of judgment, is not God the Father, it's God the Son. The Son has been given the authority to handle all judgment. So he links this ability because he has the authority to give spiritual life, unlimited immortal life, physically and spiritually, with judgment because it's consistent with what Scripture says about his authority to judge you. And to judge me, unless we're covered in the blood of the Lamb. Scripture says we then escape the judgment. 
Now look with me on the screen so you can see me back this up from Scripture. 2 Thessalonians 1.7 The Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. So who is the retribution directed to? Those who do not know God, those who reject Jesus. Acts 17.31, he, God, has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Who's that speaking of? Jesus. Understand, this is a shock to the crowd whom are sitting around Jesus because they only viewed God, Yahovah, as the judge of all the earth. And Jesus is saying, I'm the judge. Look with me on the screen, Genesis 18, 25. The judge of all the earth. It's the title that's given to God and God alone. Yet Jesus is saying, I'm God. No one would dare take that title for themselves. If someone walked up to you and said, I'm the judge of all the earth, you would not do that. No one would dare take that title. Yet Jesus does. Do you understand why John 5, 18 through 30 is amplifying Jesus saying, I'm God. Why? Because there's a goal here. Look with me at verse 23. So that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Truly, truly, you see it again? Emphatic. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes Him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. So now we see another area in which he's claiming equality with God. He's equal in honor. He's been appointed the judge. So that alone should cause men to honor him. This is huge. Here's why. Half of the earth, of planet earth, half of the population of this earth does not recognize Jesus as equal, equal to God, and does not honor Him. The Islamic religion, the Mormon's religion, the Jehovah's Witness religion do not recognize Jesus as the Son of God. They call Him a prophet or a Son of God, but not God. So they've rejected Him and stiff-armed Him. That's why this is huge. Because if you don't honor the Son, you don't honor God the Father. This is a huge declaration. So, it's only fitting that if he's equal in nature, if he's equal in works, if he's equal in power and judgment, that he would be accorded honor because he's equal and worthy of it. Now, understand the magnitude of what's going on here. There's a theologian, D.A. Carson, who really captured it well. This is putting it in the modern mindset. Look with me on the screen and see this quote. In a theistic universe... Such a statement belongs to one who is himself to be addressed as God or stark insanity. The one who utters such things is to be dismissed with scorn or worshipped as Lord. The same options confront us. Either John is supremely deluded and must be dismissed as a fool, or his witness is true and Jesus is to be ascribed the honors due God alone. See, there's no middle ground. You can't say it's very gray. Jesus never claimed to be God. That's exactly what he's claiming. So he says, truly, truly, hear me. It's truth. If you believe this, you get eternal life. 
and you don't come into judgment, but you've passed out of death into life because you missed the judgment. That's the promise for those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God and accept Him and receive Him. Paul captured this in Romans 8.1. Look with me on the screen. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. She would say Jesus is the broker or the negotiator of your eternal life. He's the gate, and you have to go through Him. And this eternal life that you inherit is the immediate possession of the believer. It happens instantly. So move with me into verse 25 because Jesus is now building towards a huge climax. I'm sure these individuals are on the edge of their seats. Here it goes again. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in Himself, even so He gave to the Son also to have life in Himself. And He gave Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. So truly, truly, pay attention. The dead are going to hear. I'm going to break this down for you into three parts. The, the, the first two congregations that gathered this weekend to hear this, this caused huge mental leaps what we're about to look into. And for the Saturday night crowd last night, we had a half hour afterwards where we just stayed and had question and answer back and forth because of the magnitude of what's going on here. This is so complex. So let's move forward first to Jesus' statement, the dead will hear. How do the dead hear? They're dead. Their ears don't work. They can't see. You can't taste. You can't eat. You can't talk. How do the dead hear? What's he talking about here? Is he talking about the spiritual resurrection or is he talking about the physical resurrection? Well, first of all, he's talking in the first part here about the spiritual resurrection when he says the dead will hear. So let's talk about the spiritual resurrection, what that looks like. It's in this sense that there's a moment in time when every one of us in this room, every person on planet earth who is not in a relationship with Jesus Christ before that time were dead to God, dead to the things of God because they had rejected Him. We were all born into sin, correct? That's what Scripture says. The Bible says every man was born into sin because we're the descendants of Adam. Because we're born into sin, we're what Scripture calls a natural man. And we tuned out the things of God. But there was a moment. There was a moment when God spoke and you heard because of God's grace. Now before I get ahead of myself, look with me on the screen. Scripture backs this up. 1 Corinthians 2.14 But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. I'm so glad that portion is in Scripture because I know, like myself, you've had conversations with people. When you share what you believe with them, or you show them passages of Scripture, and they go, what are you talking about? Where, where do you get that from? I can't see what you're describing. They're dead. They can't see. They can't hear. They can't understand, because they're not awake yet to the things of God. Grace has not yet taken hold of them. They haven't had redemption so he says there's an hour that's coming, but there's an hour that now is when this resurrection of the spiritual life begins, 
I hope your brain's hurting at this point because it's really doing loops here. Let's look at the screen at the description that Paul gave us in Ephesians about what it looked like when we were dead before we heard God. Look with me, Ephesians 2.1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace and in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So, how did you hear the voice of God, what did God give you to allow you to hear? I know the words on the tip of your tongues. Grace. He gave grace. And we didn't do anything to deserve it. But because we were dead and he extended grace to us, we heard him and responded. So that's the first part Jesus said. There's a portion in which people will dead will hear the voice and that hour now is yet there's an hour yet coming. That's the next portion he talks about. So go with me on the screen again, 1 Corinthians 15, 42. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. The cemetery is full of dead bodies. There's an hour coming when God will call with a shout and those who died in Christ will be resurrected. Physically, their bodies will be resurrected. Paul gives us a vivid description of what that looks like in 1 Corinthians 15. Look with me on the screen. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery, we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will all be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this Immortal, but when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on the immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Absolutely phenomenal. So the Son can give life because God can give life. They have the power. They're one and the same. No one can give what he doesn't have. Jesus can give life because he possesses life. He's the originator of it. So he has the power to give life. But also, he has the authority to execute judgment. He linked them again. So he's linking life 
resurrection, with his ability to execute judgment? Why is Jesus uniquely qualified to execute judgment? He's God. How can God know what it's like to be a man? God became a man. Yet Scripture said a man without sin. So Jesus is uniquely qualified as God and as man to be the judge of human flesh. Look with me on the screen. Hebrews 4.15. He, Jesus, who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. So, since He is God and He is man, He's fully capable and qualified to be the ultimate life giver and the ultimate judge. So He says in verse 28, Do not marvel at this, For an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and will come forth, those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. I laugh at this when he says, do not marvel, because it's too late. I already do. The word that he uses is thumadzo, and he says, do not thumadzo. Do not wonder at this. And I'm going, yeah, right. I absolutely do. This is shocking. This is an astounding declaration. One day, all the dead in the tombs are going to be raised and to meet Jesus. And everyone's going to say, I see dead people. Because they're going to be all around us, alive in Christ. So Jesus said the hour of bodily resurrection is yet coming. Those who are in the tombs is yet in the future. That's the hour that yet is that hasn't arrived. You know, the Bible teaches there's a specific order to the resurrection, a specific system by which it happens. Look with me first on the screen, 1 Corinthians 15, 22. For as in Adam, meaning the originator, the father of the sin, the originator of the beginning of the, the race of humans, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, and he the original resurrection with Jesus, Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ at his coming, and then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and all power. Now the Bible says there's two resurrections. Specifically, if later today, if you don't mind writing this down because it's not going to be on the screen, Revelation 20 Chapter 20, verses 4 through 6, speaks of two resurrections. So later today, if you get a chance to read it, you'll see the first resurrection is the one that you really do want to be a part of because you don't want to be part of the second resurrection. The first resurrection says, according to Revelation, we're blessed and holy if we're part of the first resurrection. What is the first resurrection? The resurrection of the righteous dead. So those who are alive during the time of the rapture, they're caught up to meet Jesus in the air. Those who are in the tombs, who are dead in Christ, their bodies are resurrected to meet Jesus in the air. That's the first resurrection. Now regardless of whether or not you're a pre-tribber or a post-tribber or a mid-tribber, or even if you don't know what that means, this next verse helps you understand some of the sequence. Look with me on the screen. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So that's part of the order. The dead in Christ rise. So this second resurrection of the unrighteous dead, the wicked, 
those who have stiff-armed God, who did not honor Jesus, they're held in death until the end of the millennium. What's the millennium? A thousand-year reign of Jesus here on earth. After the seven years of the tribulation, after the Antichrist, after the second coming of Jesus, there's a thousand years in which Jesus sets up order on this planet. And at the end of that is what's known as the white throne judgment. And that's when Jesus, God the Son, sits on the throne and judges everyone who has rejected him. That is the second resurrection. And that's why you don't want to be part of that. But here's what we understand from the text. Everyone who has ever lived on planet earth will be resurrected in some fashion. And they will stand before Jesus. Some, Scripture says, will be considered goats, meaning those who rejected God. They're on the left, and they say they're told to depart. Some are called sheep, and they're told you can enter into the kingdom because they received Jesus. But everyone will live forever. The question is, where? Where will they live? So the doctrine of the resurrection that Jesus is speaking of here cannot be overstated. It is the hinge pin of our faith. Paul understood that in such a way because the church in Corinth, during the time when the Bible was written, the Corinthians were messing it up. They couldn't quite get it in their head how this resurrection worked because they're Greeks. So Paul wrote them a note. It's called the book of Corinthians, First and Second Corinthians. And in there, chapter 15, he clarified for them that if you don't believe in the resurrection... You're in a miserable state. Look with me on the screen. 1 Corinthians 15, 16. If the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Absolutely. I mean, it's the hinge pin. So this is how Jesus wraps it up. He concludes it the same way he began. Verse 30. I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I act like God. I speak like God. Because I am God. And that's why they wanted to kill him. So the destiny of every person who's ever lived that we're speaking about here are all linked inexorably to this passage. Jesus clarified for us who he is in no uncertain terms whatsoever. So if you ever have someone come to you and say, did Jesus ever say he is God? Take him to John chapter 5, verses 18 through 30. It's so clear. He made it very evident for everyone. So you're left with this crisis of belief at this point. We've talked about this before. Because what you believe about God really does determine what you do next. So the crisis of belief says, is he who he said he is? There is no more significant question in your entire life, I guarantee it, than who is Jesus. There's no middle ground. What is your answer? So we look at this and we review this very quickly, what Jesus laid out in five minutes. Can you imagine? It'd take a lifetime to unravel this. I just barely touched on it. But here's a review of what Jesus just said. He's equal in nature. 
He's equal in works. He's equal in power. He's equal in judgment. Therefore, he's equal in honor to the degree that this was written for us, Philippians 2.9. Look with me on the screen. God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Is that honor? Absolutely. Let's pray. Father, we declare truly, truly, you have given us an amazing text. And we believe it to be truth. God, I ask that you would seal these things deeply in our heart. And when people challenge us on why we believe what we believe, bring this to memory. Show us, Father. And that can only happen through the work of your Holy Spirit because our minds get clouded very quickly. So God, use your Spirit's work in our life to remind us of this truth so that we might walk confidently and bolding, boldly knowing in whom we have believed in. And we are persuaded that he is able to keep us. God, we trust you with all this truth. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Have a great week.